0: Thought In Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Welcome to Thorn and Your Side. My name is Michael Thorn. I go by M. My surname would suggest the name of this podcast. (laughs) I'm loving trying to get into the habit of actually having a podcast with a name. So just to disclose, today is my birthday. And I have turned into a not too mystical number of 41. Um, I'm trying to find some sort of symmetric or cosmic reasoning behind such a number, but I can't find any. So I think it's just a random event, really. As a ways of at least treating myself, I've been able to wrangle a good mate and comrade of mine, and I would also not hesitate to stay a big source of inspiration towards my own podcast endeavours through what this man has been able to do on his end. I'd just like to introduce... Dave Eden from Living the Dream. How's it going, Dave?
1: It's good, Michael. Happy birthday.
0: Thank you very much.
1: How are you feeling? How's 41 going?
0: Um, Well, I feel like I've I've kind of uh, kicked into the 40s now, you know? Yeah. I'm old and weary and jaded.
1: Man, (laughs) I'm 41, I'm turning 42 in in about a month, and I've just hit the age where I think I need reading glasses at night.
0: Oh, okay. You know,
1: so it's, and and my knees hurt.
0: My knees hurt? (laughs) My knees hurt and I need reading glasses.
1: I hope there's comfy seats at the revolution.
0: (laughs) You want me to get you a hot water bottle for your birthday, Dave?
1: Well, not in Brisbane. Don't need one at the moment. Very rarely need a hot water bottle. Okay. Uh,
0: Yeah, Cool. You mightn't be um, looking at too many screens uh, during this pandemic, would I you? It I
1: think it is. I, um, I think it is. And I think it's the variations in light from working at home as well. Yeah. You know, so have you been working from home much or?
0: Uh, yes. Um, one thing that I was able to get uh, a handle on was trying to activate the blue light wherever possible with my computer screens. Oh, okay.
1: I don't even know what that is.
0: Um, I think it was. It's a Windows thing. Uh, mm. so my laptop's got it now. My PC's got it. Um, mm. I haven't been too, I been too smart with my smartphone. They're still burning my retinas. Uh, mm. but yeah, it's been a bit of a tip, uh, particularly as I've had to try to plough away with study during the pandemic period as well. That must've so, been weird. Yeah, it's been very surreal. Uh, I've just basically been locked in my bedroom, just trying to um to smash out the rest of my degree.
1: How, what was the, If look, I don't mean to hijack your your podcast, but how, what was the, uh, the learning from home or learning online experience like? Uh,
0: the learning online experience. Um, yeah. There was, a, <laughs> there was a quite a physical reaction for me uh, by the end of it. Um, I was getting a lot of dizzy spells. Um, I think it was, uh, they've only just started going away after kind of finishing up the studies mm. a month ago now, but there was that. I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to kind of look into it a bit more, but it kind of felt, feels like I did some sort of um, solitary confinement job in mm. my brain um, trying to get yeah. it out. Earlier on before the pandemic, I I kind of like being at a desk, being at a library, having yeah. that kind of ambience, but, yeah, not, not, not as much in my bed.
1: Yeah, I know you – I was listening to one of your earlier shows and you were talking to a friend – I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name. Is it John who went to Western Sydney – University of Western Sydney with you or Western Sydney University with you. Is it John? Is that his name?
0: Yep, John McGuire.
1: Yeah. And you know you're talking about kind of uh changes in the educational form, the experience of education. And I'm aware that these conversations can end up being like sounding just like any other kind of old fart. But I know for me at least, like um what I loved when I did study was actually to be on campus and was the the experience of, you know, being in a library or seeing other people, having a chat over what you just learned, learned you know, you just chatting stuff you learned over coffee, you know, um, if you had time having a lie down in in Main Oval or something like that. And the change to um, online I find a bit worrying. Well, I, would, I find it unappealing, I guess. I, I tried to do an online course because my work subsidised it last year and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. Didn't you? I know, just flunked out within within about two or three weeks. But I have read a lot of things that apparently some students, particularly younger students, prefer online learning. That it's a more comfortable experience for them. So I don't know. Maybe that's just being old fartism, but I would find it very challenging to to do any kind of studying. You're doing a master's as well, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so with the pandemic, when that once that kicked in, I needed to write my final thesis. So it was probably mm. the arse end of my degree, where I had to do more writing than previously. Yeah. Before it was mostly reading, and uh, and then of course doing the essays as needed. But this time it was just intensive writing, so yeah. definitely staring even, at the screen a lot.
1: And even though it's pretty solitary, like I, you know, it's you know when I finished doing my PhD, I wasn't living in the same city my university was in, but I I would go to to Brisbane State Library to work in, because mm-hmm. even though you know writing such a solitary thing, I liked being around other people. You know, while while I was doing it, I think if it was, you know. Doing it just at home was just a bit too much.
0: Yeah, you know, got through by the end of it, but mm. there's, and I suppose this could lend itself to perhaps what we're going to have a bit more of a chat about this evening, Dave. I just feeling that the COVID nineteen has presented an environment where a lot of exploitations have become a bit more invisible than usual. Mm.
1: One thing I've been thinking about quite a lot is, uh, I guess, like how really different lots and lots of different people's experiences are probably, you know, even just within Australia and how I don't know if we, we're getting, like myself individually, I'm really getting an understanding of what all of this is meaning for everyone, right? Like, um, you know, here in, in Brisbane, it's, you know, we, we don't, haven't, don't, haven't had any kind of lockdown for uh, a considerable while and I have no real understanding of, of what's going down in Victoria. Mm. but also really like the experience of work, you know, like some of us are working from home and there's no positives and negatives to that. But those people who jobs have either disappeared and now being thrown into unemployment for the first time and, and what that means, or those people who have been working. And I think logistics has been one of the most you know, hard hit kind of areas and what that experience has been like. And I, don't, I just don't feel like because the pandemic isolates and we've kind of been compelled to be isolated about it, that I'm not really sure that I'm feeling or we're developing as the left or society or whatever, a really good collective impression. And that's even before we start thinking about the rest of the world, right? like, what this looks like on a global level. And I think that's going to have an impact, you know? Like, I feel my world is quite small and confined at the moment. I'm not seeing what's going on for other people. Do you, do you, do you think anything like that, Michael? How's well, your experience of it been?
0: It has felt like a bit of a regression where, I mean, I'm 41 now. Yeah. I feel like times have gone back about 50 or 60 years ago. I can yeah. imagine times where the state is a lot more large and commanding than Australia yeah. and also that greater sense of provincialism as well. So, yeah, I think
1: you're right on. That's exactly what I wanted to get to. You know, I talked to a friend in um, Victoria, and you know, he was saying that he'd never felt less committed to a notion of Australia, or that Australia, the Australian government, just seemed irrelevant. And for him, the the focus was on Victoria. And I think, you know, like this, the cracks in federation are kind of really showing. And on the political level, states seem to be more important than they've ever had before. And yeah, there is a lot of like. Um, the kind of Queensland, New South Wales provincialism is super strong, right?
0: But like I say, though, it's a regression for me Mm. in the sense that, I mean, I wasn't around 50 or 60 years ago, but I I can imagine that there was that national view where um, things were very much decided upon the actual agenda of the state rather than agenda of the Commonwealth. And I think that's definitely influenced uh, the way people have have kind of lived in the last few months as well. Mm. I mean, you're seeing the premiers, they they have their daily press conferences and then Scott Morrison has his daddy check-in on the weekend to Australia, Mm -hmm. you
1: know? Yeah, and and the the chief health officer has never been a a more prominent figure, right? Um,
0: The chief health officer in Victoria has come under fire. Mm. They did a recent commission inquiry, I think, down in Victoria in terms of finding out what happened with the quarantine debacle, mm. where it was found, uh, and I think a lot of this happened um, through the efforts of, of independent media. Um, mm. I can think of individuals like Osman Faruqi, who mm. I think is with, um, with the, the Weekly these days, really bringing to light that um, a lot of the quarantine controls and uh, regulations were administered through private contractors, so there wasn't really so much regulation there, and I think the mm. consequence of it was a lot of uh, contagion. That seems to be something that's happened there in Victoria, but I think there's lessons there in terms of just how effective a state can be with actually providing a duty of care. Mm. And like you said, the health minister there has become a lord unto mm. himself in terms of how all of this stuff is going down.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I... The COVID-19 has really challenged for my thinking has been you know you look around the globe and there seems to be really different experiences of how different nation states have both responded to COVID-19 and its impact and it seems kind of like a um, things that I don't really think about, like specific state capacity or, you know, a history of having public health programs around respiratory illnesses and things like that really, really matter, that it's very easy for my level of thinking to kind of like flatten the differences between different states into like a meta-theory of this is the capitalist mode of production and the state relates to it in this particular way. But it seems like we're actually seeing like a, a massive variety in how states have responded and massively different results. So, you know, you know, you have different states doing things as, you know, you wouldn't say what China and South Korea did um, were the same or what Vietnam has done is the same, but they've all got relatively uh, positive results if you're looking at terms of the impact of of both the spread of the disease, the amount of people that died and then the impact on, on general society. And I really need to, I think it's going to take me some time to really factor in what's going on but also your, your point in terms of you know you feel a regression's going on it's really hard to understand changes when you're in them you know like you know i think I've ne- i haven't read hegel but you know there's that classic line the owl of minerva or takes flight at dusk or whatever it is and i think that's it i think it, and that means you know you get your understanding at the end of the day you know <laughs> knowledge is retrospective yeah. but when you're you're living in it it's it's um yeah, it's I constantly checking myself about like, am I? What am I getting? What's going on? What am I really seeing here? Yeah, it's it's challenging stuff. I think what we can do is is really
0: try our best to to have a chat with people in other areas. I think the the happy byproduct of this has been that digital communications has has gone gangbusters within this time. JCar is selling a lot of headphones and microphones. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they are. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, with my own podcast project, uh, which I've started during these pandemic times, I've, I've started doing episodes with international peoples, something that Yeah, I heard um, the
1: one I heard when I was the other day.
0: Yeah, yeah, so uh, I, I didn't think I'd, I'd get there so quickly in terms of the reach and, and people that are keen to talk. Cool. I suspect that with this pandemic maybe slowly withering away, uh, I think from there it'll be about trying to figure out what's kept and what's discarded mm. This digital advantage that we've had, I'm hoping, will be kept in many ways rather than just discarded as a, as a novelty thing while mm. we go back to more face-to-face contact. But at the same time, the, yeah, there won't be any snapback. I think that's been the rhetoric from the, the, the powers that be currently in Australia at the moment and certainly reflected within this budget that we've just had during the week as well, trying to basically um, uh, smudge old ideas into a new terrain, which is quite mm. odd.
1: Yeah. Have you thought much about the budget? What, what's your understanding?
0: Uh, glass half full. I'm finding this week at least a bit more rational than the week before. Mm. <laughs> People are talking and saying points of views rather than just total dysfunctional behavior as it was the week before last with the, the Trump again.
1: Oh, yeah. I totally ignored that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good move. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll guide my listeners to the previous episode with Ruth. Uh, I think Ruth and I do a good blow-by-blow blow with how we had our own physical and intellectual experiences through that week. But in regards to the budget, it's the, it's the same sound bites that seem to be coming from a state um, trying to enforce an old, uh, these days, an old economic ideology within circumstances that have certainly dramatically changed.
1: <laughs> do you think that's what it is?
0: Well, the other thing as well, and maybe Dave, we can disentangle it a bit more, but there seems to be, everything seems to be hinging upon a magic bullet in terms of a vaccine. And Mm. I don't know how realistic that is or how magical it is, but I think at the moment with the, the comments that tend to be happening and whenever politicians get in front of a microphone, there are magical comments abound Um, I'm not sure how much that is actually grounded within material facts, but look, whatever sounds good. Yeah, I guess I think a number of
1: different things about about what you're saying. Um, So like I'm currently reading this book of um, writings by this uh, Italian communist political theorist Mario Tronti um, from the 60s, and he makes some throwaway comments talking about the difference between like bourgeois ideology and bourgeois science you know and when you know you have those long-winded conversations between what's trying to work out what's ideology and what science you know they always end in a ditch somewhere but it's kind of useful at some level I guess what he's trying to say is there are periods of time when the state and or sections of the state you know do actually understand capital's problems and there's other times when they're um, like caught up in their own ideological projection you know their own illusion of what going on and i think in some ways like i don't know if this budget is like a continuation of old ideas though certainly the ideological framework is there i think capital you know the challenge for states is that of course the capitalist mode of production is not built to deal with a pandemic like this right because it's built on constant growth and the constant circulation of people and commodities and that circulation has been necessarily interrupted and so the state suddenly had to kind of f- f- hurl into action in an attempt to subsidise both capital and labour, really. But my understanding of the budget is, I think it it's uh, at some level there's an element of clarity in it, which is that the government understands that the core of the capitalist mode of production is profit, and companies invest on the basis of the profits that they have and on their belief to make profit in the future. And so what are the kind of elements that are in the budget? I should, hopefully I can remember some of the key ones now. So, you know, tax write-offs for companies, subsidies of of wage labor um, in in terms of of hiring. You know, this is a really attempt for the state to kind of put a, like a respirator machine on capital to try to increase its its capacity to make profit. And I think there's an element of clarity in what the government's doing there. I, that's not to say that it will work because I think, you know, that COVID-19 has been such a major hit. And even before COVID-19, I think there's good arguments to say that there was a general kind of decline in, in profitability Anyway, but I I don't think it's just old ideas. I think it's a realization on the state that to save capitalism, they've got to subsidise capitalism in an attempt to make it profitable again to encourage investment. Does that make sense?
0: Well, you mentioned subsidising capital. Now yeah. that would sound to me a, a bit more extraordinary intervention from the government than usual
1: oh totally you've mentioned you know,
0: subsidization and- there so so what does that look like and how much would you say that the budget has reflected that
1: oh okay lucky <laughs> i opened some documents beforehand so <laughs> uh, I, I can well first of all this was already going on right you know if you think about um like job keeper so what what was job keeper was basically increasing you know paying the wage bill um for capital mm-hmm. and then um it trying to build some demand by things like job seeker payment support payments things like that but then it's it's what it, it has been for capital originally it's been tax write-offs and trying to reduce the tax burden on capital mm. particularly i think at the moment where they you know i haven't looked into the details but my understanding of, of what they've proposed in in this budget is a pretty substantial i think ability to almost, almost instantly write off uh, on on tax like any capital investment, right? So really like trying to the state, well, the state is spending more and calling less in um, in an attempt for, for capital to have more of its profit well, at, the time, you know, a, at the same time, at the same time. Sorry, Michael, you go.
0: Yeah, I was just saying there's a, there seems to be a bit of a running gag going around the internets at the moment where Joe Blow can set up a small business and then get a UTE and then just write it off come tax time now with oh, these, totally. these new measures.
1: Um, yeah, Obviously, it's open to broad. And the other thing, too, as well, that the, the problem has always been and well, has been for a substantial amount, amount of time now is if capital gets more money, is it going to take that money and invest that in the real economy for lack of a better term or will it take that and and engage in financial speculation right like so if there's more cash in the hands of the local cafe are they necessarily going to rush out there and buy another coffee machine you know is uh you know factories making tractor parts are they going to say oh suddenly we're going to expand and 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 partly because the issues for this predate COVID-19
0: yeah, I mean, the idea is has been there to keep the lines of capital circulating. Mm. Um, they've changed in little bits and bobs, obviously, with the pandemic as mm. a response and, and as a reaction by the governments. One thing I have noticed, though, is that there seems to be a, a real tension that... That now has arisen um, within the pandemic. I guess this is going to be yet another chicken and egg argument that I'm about to present here, but there seems to be a real agitation between different lobbying groups, activists, mm. movements, agitating for just how big government can get and how much of an yeah. alleviating force government can be. And government are constantly trying to test the boundaries on that. And I think that has been particularly played out through this increasingly indiscriminate cliff that's happening with JobKeeper, where there's still a cliff, but you just don't know how much of a sheer edge there is to it at the moment and how much they keep pushing back the cliff.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, it's really, what, what do we make of the change in the approach to Australian government debt and debt generally, right? Where you think, you know, 10 years ago after the financial crisis, obviously there was a huge growth in debt and state debt as the state once again stepped into bailout capital cr- across the world, but in Australia as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that the, what's mindful there is that um, that was born from a private debt crisis. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, Totally
1: totally and 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 also as well that the amount of private debt has continued to grow too you know like interestingly enough in in um the, in the immediate short term with COVID-19 that people say like households are saving more than they were previously but as a general you know there might be a little dip at the end but as a general tendency household debt has increased as well but you know we were we were really told um you know debt was In itself, this threat to economic stability of the capitalist system. And now things have shifted quite fundamentally, and there's a huge expansion of debt. And we're told, okay, look, you know, we really don't need to worry about it at the moment. Now, there's certainly some voices um, on you know, the left, centre-left to the more radical left. People, I guess broadly, we might put them under modern monetary theory or not even necessary modern monetary theory, maybe just normal social Democrats who are saying, you know, this proves that debt is never an issue. Right. And this was just an ideological obsession, uh, just a weapon that, you know, conservatives use to justify cutting state spending. Cause that's what they always really wanted to do. Dave, just to ask you I, an awkward question at this point.
0: Do you reckon mass monetary theory is the new third way concept?
1: Modern monetary theory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do I think it's a new third-way concept? I
0: mean, not um, in the philo- not like in terms of aligning philosophies, you know. It's about trying to express how this is being presented as it's not something within a leftist domain, not something within yeah. a rightist domain, something that remains within the centre. Yeah, and- yeah,
1: so certainly I think um, most proponents that we'd be familiar with of modern monetary theory are positioned somewhere on the left, say a social democratic or green section of the left. But there are other parts of capital, someone like Alan Kohler, right? You know, prominent Australian commentary, um, economic commenter yeah. who's moved more to monetary theory because I think at one real level, it they see it as responding to a problem, right? That they see it as that there's a, how are we going to deal with generally declining investment? What we need to do is get more money out there and a kind of resuscitation of that Keynesian idea of you know stimulating more, but also because you don't have to increase taxation or anything like that. I think it's also probably third way in the sense that you're using it in that it believes that you can have capitalism with a human face. Ah. That if you if you set something up like a, um, like a jobs guarantee to pick one, you can build a mechanism that means you can broadly have capitalist society, but you can get rid of unemployment and then the state can start redirecting capitalist society towards um, more green or um, socially just or equitable ends Mm -hmm. and that you don't need a great deal of conflict over this like you've got to beat some right-wing enemies but really you've just got to get good people with good ideas and good policy into key positions and you can like shift the ship of state and everything will be hunky-dory yeah, <laughs> um, and I'm sure I'm sure there'll be some proponents of MMT out there that you know are howling that I'm misrepresenting it. But you know, this podcast chat, you know, it's it's not a peer-reviewed paper. So yeah, I do see that. I also think that's why it's appealing at the moment to people on the left because there's no real need for a class movement to pull apart capitalist society and build something to replace it. Right? Mm-hmm. There's just you need a bit of a political movement with a bit of oomph. To, to, you know, fight off the the bad people at the Australian and the Institute of Public Affairs, kick the Liberals out, get Labor and Green in, in coalition into power together and and can them over a policy paper, and you'll start be pointing things in the right direction.
0: Um, How much of that do you reckon is just pure policy wonkery, Dave, and how much of it do you reckon is anchored within social sustainability?
1: I think the whole thing's an illusion, right? Um, But I do think something that's interesting at the moment has been, like... Well, we've moved on from one topic, which is like, you know, what's changed with debt and is debt still an issue? Should we think about it? Like, what? And that's, in my brain, created a whole bunch of really difficult questions about how we think about the capitalist system. But the other one is that, yeah, we have seen like a lot of friends and comrades increasingly arguing for in the short term and the medium term, what we really need is increased state intervention to stabilize capitalism and and push capitalism in, in another direction. And policy and policy wonks are increasingly seen as the key form of struggle, if that makes sense. And that's very interesting that that, that that's developed. And, you know, I've got a number of kind of totally out of my back pocket bullshit theories about um, why that might be the case. But um, I think it is uh, is a real change. Uh, I've been cancelled on
0: Facebook by a, a few users for oh, really? attempting to voice that such
1: okay such theory. That's interesting. Like, <laughs> I, you know to to blow, to blow my own uh, you know trumpet a little bit. I just had a uh, like a very short article published in, uh, on the on the website version of the American publication Jacobin, where I do a critique of of what I call the New Keynesians, and you know oh. the, I really wish. I could carve out more time to do this more substantially.
0: Well, at the very um, least, Dave, give me the link to the uh, the article and then yeah, I'll, I'll we'll whack do. it on
1: the episode. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. Um, it's quite funny because if you go to the uh, Jacobin um, Facebook page, there's not a single positive comment. It's all like, this is garbage.
0: Maybe for some clarity there, like I, I'm fully well-versed with the, the the cultural norms of Jacobin and what uh, is suitable commentary within that particular yeah. domain. Where do you reckon Jacobin lies in the terms of good uh, information?
1: Yeah. I think people see it most closely associated with the democratic socialists of America. And I think the content broadly varies between kind of social democratic to democratic socialist, with a couple of revolutionary articles in there now, now and again. and uh, you know, it's a little bit of Leninism there. But, yeah, the kind of the left of the Bernie camp, you know, and even the people that, you know, would see themselves as anti-capitalists, I guess, probably had some orientation towards um, the Bernie campaign. But um, you really, like, if you think about the argument that comes out of, say, the ACTU, and I'd really actually like to talk to you about a bunch of stuff around this, you know, the argument that comes out of, say, Sally McManus or the ACTU, ACTU has a recent paper. Its name I can't remember. It's like, You know, this, it's like the National Economic Recovery something. You know, they have this very, you know, this narrative that is is very much goes along the lines of the Second World War happens, chiefly government, they write a white paper that establishes policy a particular way, then everything is great until the seventies, then the neoliberals take over, they have bad policy, then everything's bad. And now all we need to do is get people with good policy and then we can go back to what we had from the 40s to, to the 70s and everything we be fine again. In terms of an effective
0: policy structure, I think that's where you get the, the Whitlamites and the Keatonites coming out of the woodwork there saying that there were two good paradise-like moments in recent Australian history um, when Whitlam was around and when Keating was around the two policy oases within modern australian times and i think these days if there is going to be some sort of i suppose policy galvanization i think there is a lot of harking back to
1: romanticizing yeah. of those moments i think it's even more than that michael i think you know if you if you are kind of in the trade unions and the labor party and you are making the argument that i just expressed history is not your friend because what you're basically doing you have to do a whole lot of hand waving over the fact that what you're actually celebrating is the Menzies period, right? You you effectively have to say that it was the Chifley government, they put through policy and then Menzies carried it out, right? Because the most of the period you're looking back and celebrating is the Menzies government. But also then you have to deal with the fact that, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, and we know this is demonstrably true, mm. that if we want to talk about neoliberalism, if you want to use that term, it was the Labor Party that introduced it into Australia. Sure, And not just the Hawke Keating government. I think Liz Humphreys uses the term to describe Whitlam as proto-neoliberal, right? So the entire historical argument is complete balls. Yeah. But we see it a lot. Like, it seems like there has been this shift right like this um you know return of the state and a belief in policy to develop different instruments that will prevent the crisis getting any worse help people out and steer capitalism in in a different direction possibly even steer it into some form of post capitalism and i really wish i had more time to develop a decent argument against it but i was just able to get this smaller argument out but i don't know how we got to that point but um yeah, so, yeah, sorry, Michael, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought.
0: Well, you're right. I definitely do appreciate you um, challenging uh, Whitlamism and Keatingism. Uh, I don't know how necessarily true they are in terms of where we need to go back to, to bolster the trade union movement, but th- that seems to be the, the, the rhetorical sentiment.
1: I know that you're quite in- involved or you know involved as you could be trying to be from a critical way in the um, Change the Rules campaign, right? Yeah. Which has been kind of just unceremoniously wrapped up and and hurled over the back shoulders into the bin, right? Yeah. Did, did you know there was a new campaign called For the Workers?
0: Ah, uh, yes, yes, I did. All right.
1: How did you know about it? Um,
0: I found this out through an announcement that happened on uh, one of the online meetings that um that the ACTU ah. holds. Um, and then uh, I think about uh, an hour later, um, you found that the previous change the rules Facebook groups had been rebadged into for the workers. Oh God. Uh, type. Did you
1: go to the ma- So you went to the online meeting, did you?
0: Uh, yes. Yes. What was it like? Uh, there wasn't the debate so much. I, I think it was a Sally said something and. But this was all part of the weekly serial that the ACTU put on. But, yeah, one week they brought on um, Sally as a special guest star and mm. she uh, said, um, let's start the For the Workers campaign. And then there was, um, I mean, the closest thing you got to a bit of democratic banter about it was just basically looking at the, the chat reel that was going on mm, interesting. Um, while listening to Sally What was talk. the chat reel? So like. it was it, the platform was Zoom. Yeah, if people are very familiar with how Zoom works, it's like you you see a person talk and you see different people in different panels and all that sort of thing on the screen. But you can also push the icon and then it brings up a chat column over to the right. Mm So what can effectively happen when you've got a very long speech happening, which um, Sally did to basically reveal for the workers, was there was a stream of consciousness that was happening within the chat. I yeah. mean, a lot of it was stuff like, awesome, Sally, you go, Sally, we're going to win, blah, 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 for the union, so all that sort of stuff. But now and again, there were there some views and hot takes and certainly stuff that that wanted to try to engender more of a of a critique over what's being discussed but that happens in chat there seems to be a bit more of a, a social authenticity about it if you can actually mm. hear it being said by people who are talking on the zoom platform at the time so that's how it's all presented but at the moment it's all under the, the compromised guise of the pandemic. So I don't know if restrictions lift, whether they'll continue to be this Tuesday serial or they'll go back to more face-to-face stuff. I don't know. But it, it seems to be effective in the sense that you're doing a broadcast campaign, mm. which may or may not have any real concrete union movement value <laughs> but at least presents semblance of some kind of substance to a movement. And from there, I suppose that's where the conversation starts, like how legitimate that premise is.
1: Yeah, it just feels like, obviously, Change the Rules did have a different state-by-state take-up by different groups of people. I think there wasn't really much here in in Queensland. Um, A couple of huge rallies in Melbourne seemed to have some real participation in sydney and actually i'm just talking about three states apologies to uh, the rest of australia who kind of get ignored all the time about this but for the workers genuinely seems like astroturf <laughs> you know like something that has just come out of you know a staffer's ideas it's got an online presence um and it's a three no, no content again. yeah there's no content right like i'm glad it's interesting that you know about it but i guess you know i'm you're not the average union member in the sense that um, you're quite involved, right? And you've got um, a bigger political motivation than just unionism. So you do pay attention to these kind of things. Um, I, I wonder how many of my workmates would know about it. I think, um, to be blunt, I
0: think that there's still a lot of reeling with, um, with what's happening. The familiar sounding boards in terms of being politically active have changed. Um, yeah, it's true. People are still trying to figure out like how much the online stuff that happens, how effective and how valuable yeah. that
1: is. And how- pro- and yeah, in various different positions about street protests and the like. Like you know, I've been pretty. I have tried to remain really consistent about that. I don't know what's the best way to manage a pandemic because I don't have I have, don't have any understanding of epidemiology. It's the same thing when you were talking about um, the vaccine before. Like, I have no idea. I, I know beyond reading a couple of columns, I know nothing about vaccine production. So, you know, I don't really know what state sh- should be doing. I don't really know how long a vaccine will, will take or not. But, it, I, you know, there does seem to be something that's really interesting is now what is possible. Like, how do you have so much, you know, po- our kind of politics at some level is really based around, like, The crowd of people in the street right or or a workplace or whatever it's about you people come together in some face-to-face way and they do something you know occupy a vice chancellor's office form a picket have a rally when those things become impossible what does you know and I I doesn't I I think people are thinking up really interesting answers to this about how people operate collectively and how people care for each other and how people do various different things, but it's a real challenge, right? And it's interesting seeing. And I'm far away from it. You know, it seems to be a relatively small group of people in at Sydney University who are kind of challenging what's going on at universities. They're trying to organise some kind of confrontational stunt-like protests. I guess. Yeah. So at- I
0: actually hope to make a future episode out of that. Um- oh, brilliant. Yeah, I'm trying to capture um, a couple of big um, players within that. But of course, yeah, cool. uh, it's very hard to pin them down because they're in the midst of an SRC election at the moment.
1: Ugh, another reason to hate student elections. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you do really see like the weight of kind of pandemic law being brought down to smash them, right? And I get very nervous about some of the kind of cheerleading of the online left when the state does the same thing to the cosmic right if that makes sense you know like when you get the kind of anti-vaxxers q on people out attempting to break quarantine when the state smashes them i'm very i don't i'm very uncomfortable at the state smashing them but i'm also very uncomfortable about the cheerleading that happens from some sections of the very online left
0: I mean, we're all about trying to find social change through looking at the points of of where the the material political problems are, right? I think in this instance, it becomes very much distilled into this online drama where you see all these really weird theories that come out of the woodwork. And I think it's very Mm. well encapsulated by that term that you've coined, Dave, the cosmic right Mm. But what's the, the counter response to that? And it seems to be that idea of exposing just the illegitimacy of those views. That's seen as the triumph in the internet
1: wars. Yeah, internet know. wars. That's interesting. But I think, I think it's also, um, I think it's partly, you know, also related to this falling in a certain section of the, of, of the left, if we use that term, whoever, whoever that is or whatever, falling back in love with the state. Right. You know, that the state will save the economy and the state will round up our political enemies, you know, and I think it's a very blind analysis.
0: The other thing I might throw in there as well, Dave, I'd love to be able to try to discuss this further in future episodes because I think it yeah, is sure. a discussion that lefty types really need to have. And fuck it, it's my birthday. This blurring that's happening between left and right through critiques of state. Yeah. And I reckon we're seeing this perfectly being played out with this group that I had a chat about with Ruth in the last episode where she, mm. um, she administers this Facebook group called Leftisms. Mm. If it's one thing that the US is doing very well in terms of its politics, it is really revealing all the the different forms of political spectrum of the Mm. left and around the left. So within this Leftisms group, you're seeing anarchists, social democrats, liberals, um, American version of liberals, and also the tankies, of which I would argue that because there is that, fanaticism about state prevailing that there isn't in reality i just i can't see too much difference between marxist leninism and fascism it seems Mm. like a kinder less threatening version of it but it gets infantilized because it's often expressed through internet memes
1: so so i would i would say a number of different things about this i i'm certainly um puzzled and critical of the kind of rise of millennial tankyism if that makes sense but like i don't think it's the same as fascism nor do i think all people who would operate under terms like you know marxism leninism or marxist leninism i've never been sure if it's a t or an m are the same as tankies like the the thing that i've always been amazed by is that you know i think about when i got involved in in radical politics in the 90s you know i soon became familiar with the term tanky and it was to refer to, you know, Stalinists. And the people who were Stalinists were normally very old or older people who'd been members of the Communist Party of Australia, then had joined the Socialist Party of Australia when it it split after the tanks went into Czechoslovakia, right? And often I found that, you know, the interesting thing about these people is that they had, at some level, formerly terrible politics, but in practice were often awesome, right? <laughs> and had just been, on the whole, were often you know blue-collar workers that had spent a lifetime of struggle, and those people were great. Though, you know, you could sometimes go, okay, there's problems with the politics here, and there are problems with the political culture, and online meme millennial tankism, like, seems to have all the worst of Stalinist politics, but none of the real world class struggle experience if that makes sense but i do think you know ideas just don't float around in the ether like wrong ideas are products of their time as much as any other ideas what is going on in our particular historical moment this conjuncture that if you're like a young person who's critical of capitalism the thing that is appealing to you is the imagery of of state power and tanks right and i think it like i think partly it speaks to like the the deficiencies in the development of class struggle right and i think you'd like to think that if things were moving in a positive direction this would be something that would kind of work itself out in the wash as like more real things developed people would kind of get over it but at the same time, I think it does act as a bit of a, a bulwark. I also think it says something about we live in a crazy world where everything is 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 laughing, right? Where we've gone from you know cosplay being nothing to cosplay being everything, and and politics has taken that effect. And for a certain amount of people, you you know you want to change capitalism. The thing you do is dress up like you're a Red Army soldier, which to me just seems look. I've got to say, and again to go back to our original theme of being old. It seems fucking crazy to me, and I would say that is different from people who want to have a really nuanced and rigorous understanding of what the what actually you know actually existing socialism in inverted commas was. Because you know you can there are certainly you know people can look at experiences of actually existing socialism in the USSR periods of China and see what they consider positives in them. I don't think they that means they present viable alternatives to capitalism. But I think that is also different from this kind of, you know, kind of tankyism. I think there's probably something else and I don't really know much about it, but I'm going to wing it and talk about it anyway, if that's all right with you, Michael. Sure. This is a hot take safe space, Dave. Okay. Hot take safe space. That's good. There does seem, and I kind of partly only know about this from watching some of your online arguments, It's apart from the millennial meme tankyism, I guess there's a layer of kind of young, young union bureaucrats that have these kind of politics as well uh indeed um so um that makes sense to me like if you under understand you know you legitimately and seriously understand like what it means to be challenging society capitalist society is being a bureaucrat you develop a future vision of emancipation which is the expansion of the bureaucracy yeah yeah that that makes a lot and also i guess people are kind of pulled into to the tradition and also you know like it that the, they want the dream of success, you know, like it was kind of what we might call Stalinist or, you know, the kind of orthodox Marxist-Leninist parties that overthrew various states. So people say, hey, that's success. Well, they were successful at destroying the previous order. They were just not successful at building a viable alternative. But fair play, 20th century, no one was successful. All the tendencies failed, right? Right. Um, So I get why people are drawn to it but I don't think it's the same as fascism except for and since you said it's a hot take safe space there is perhaps a similar romanticism of the past but I think that's also common culturally in the same way that fascists particularly those that are um, less into like goose stepping and more into Vikings you know like build an image of a romanticised past of the homogenous community or, you know, like trad Catholics do the similar thing.
0: Well, it does get repainted. I mean, I think the Proud Boys is the, the best example of that yeah. that's happening right now.
1: Yeah, I, I do think there's probably there's this romanticism of like a period of capitalism where workers wore cloth caps and swung big hammers and went to mass union meetings and capitalists were fat cats in Top Hats who smoke cigars lit by um, $100 bills and the red flag flew over, you know, the Reichstag. That, I think there was certainly like um, a romanticization of the past that's common there. But I think that romanticization is is common in lots of different parts of Australia.
0: Yeah, I think what I'll take there from you, Dave, in terms of where I'm formulating my own thoughts and, and viewpoints here is, is that hyper-romanticization of state. And I suppose that's where I do expose my own anarchist leanings. But look, uh, I'm not necessarily sure that my views are so partisan. I wonder just how much that romanticization is actually based upon real, material, political analysis and observation. I'm not so sure about that. And uh, I think it teases up a bunch of cultural Observations that uh, that I think we've definitely touched upon in this latter half of this episode. Um, mm. That I think that the left could definitely benefit from from unpacking a bit further.
1: I really want to add one other thing. I know we're probably running out of time. I don't want to stretch the friendship. T- Just kidding. <laughs> I, I think I think this is like really key to the analysis. Yeah, is I think this is romanticization is a product of the low level of class struggle and that really the way to deal with these pathologies is probably not head on but to continue the experiments in trying to work out what are effective and useful ways of building you know genuine struggle across the social terrain that point in a different direction and ultimately that'll be the acid that um, melts away these weird pathologies
0: Yeah, what does the class terrain
1: look like? Like it it is a dynamic thing. Well, that's the thing, right? Like we need to actually spend, not that we've done it right now, so, you know, whatever. Um, We need to spend more time actually thinking about the the real material conditions and antagonisms of our daily life and less about the fact that shit is weird online, unless some smart person might come out and tell me that those two things are actually the same. So, you know, but, yeah, like really the starting point's got to be our – daily lives.
0: And and I think it's very okay to say that this COVID-19 stuff makes that observation a whole lot more fucking hard.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true.
0: And and this is how we started with this episode talking about how different problems and pains that are happening within these last few months have become invisible and people are often experiencing it in isolation.
1: But also simultaneously seeing the possibly the largest insurrection in memory in the united states that has produced a kind of language that people have been taken up all over the world um there's good things about that. there's bad things about that um but also like really rammed a wedge even further into the middle of u.s society and into u.s capital right you know where we where have this fracture on one hand where you know trump administration Telling, you know, government organizations, you teach a, a pretty milquetoast diversity class and you'll get stacked, right? And um, Lulu Lemon offering, you know, which I think is an exercise clothing brand, um, <laughs> offering, you know, running workshops, critiquing racial capitalism. Like I've
0: referred to in a, a couple of episodes now, um, the MBA emerging as some sort of
1: leadership. Totally.
0: In terms of right? progressive
1: like, movements. Yeah, so that's the huge thing, right? That's huge. But yeah, then at the same time, you know, Strange times.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I definitely like to uh, to keep these conversations up. Yeah, whatever. I think um, it's great. But I think that's probably the the kind of tangent I'm taking with these podcast episodes, Dave. That um, if we're going to try and figure out what last looks like right now and what the the lay of the land looks like, I try to um, mm. provide different snapshots of it with the different episodes and the different people I find myself talking yeah. to.
1: I oh, know I think I think it's great I really enjoy the podcast I, I really think you just need to promote it more you know get, get those listener numbers up I think the, I think you've got a really great interviewing style and it's really interesting yeah because I think you know the, the conversations that you have with people about kind of where they're at quickly spiral into bigger conversations and back again and that's um I think that's a really key part of of radical theory is getting those different bits together yeah.
0: All right. Well, next episode, Michael works out how to come up with a big promotion machine Sounds involving good. lots of air guns um, firing shirts into the audience. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, happy
1: happy birthday, Michael. I'll talk to you later.
0: Cheers, Dave. Catch okay. you
1: later. Okay. Bye bye.
0: See ya.